question that I would put before you as we open into the Word of God today, and as we look in Ephesians 4, is this. Who are you becoming? What sort of person are you being made into? Sometimes we don't think about who we are becoming. We may have a a general sense of who we, we sense we are now. But, but there is a direction, there is a trajectory to our lives. We are becoming a certain kind of person. And there are various things that, that affect and form who we are becoming. So I want you to, to keep that thought in mind. In our efforts to be fit and healthy kinds of persons... We've probably all had someone quip to us at some point, you are what you eat, right? Meaning that what we put into our bodies greatly affects their shape and their size and their well-being. But theologian uh, James K.A. Smith, in his recent book called You Are What You Love, has challenged us to, to think about our personhood in a different way. And with this claim that you are, in fact, what you love. That you become like the thing you desire most. And that begs the question, well, what, in fact, do we love? Where are our affections pointed? So I was thinking about that that concept. It made me recall a scene from... Charlie, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think, is the book title. Roald Dahl. And if you have, who's read the book or seen the film? Probably 80, 90% of us. If you recall the, the, the concept of the story, there are a handful of lucky children that win the right to tour Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. But you'll you'll recall that once these children make it inside the factory, almost every one of them uh, runs into some kind of trouble. And typically they they get themselves into trouble because of the the excess of their desire, because of the things they love or the way in which they love them. And one of those children is named Violet Beauregard. Violet's great passion, her great love in life is chewing gum. She says uh, near the beginning of the film that she's been chewing the same piece of gum now for three months. She's won trophies, she's won competitions based on this great passion of hers. But where that gets her into trouble is when uh, the the factory lands them in uh, the inventing room. And Willy Wonka pulls out a piece of gum that he says they've been experimenting on. And it's a three-course meal placed into one piece of gum. And before he's finished explaining about this new product, Violet takes the gum and throws it in her mouth. And she begins chewing away with some enthusiasm. But Willy Wonka warns her that, in fact, that the gum isn't finished, that it's still under production, that it could be dangerous to her. But she... She pays no mind to that warning. She continues chewing. And you'll remember if you've seen the film, what happens next. 
Right? The, the blueberry-flavored gum she's chewing causes Violet to swell up into a puffy blue ball. And in come the Oompa Loompas, right? And they, they have to roll Violet out of the room. And as she's being rolled away, her father chases after her and he says, I've got a blueberry for a daughter. Violet has literally become the thing she loved, right? It's consumed her. It's taken over her life. And that's kind of a silly, humorous example. And to my knowledge, there were no candy factories in biblical times. They haven't excavated anything like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in Mesopotamia somewhere. But they have excavated other objects that captivated the affections of the ancient world. And these things were called idols. Psalm 115 we're told about what happens when an idol becomes the thing that we love. We're told that what we worship, in fact, matters. This is Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. The nation's idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear and noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And then verse 8. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. That verse says it all. Those who make idols, those who set their affection on idols, will become like them. They too will have mouths, yes, and ears and hands, but they will lack life itself. They will become as a stone or metal, hardened, lifeless. Right? You are what you love. You are what you worship, the psalmist says. And so we must be careful what we give our hearts to, where we set our affections. But the psalmist says that while the nations worship the idols, when we, in fact, come to the God of Israel, we worship a living God who does as he pleases. We worship a God who is full of life and vitality. And our God's great desire is to make a people who will be like him. A people full of life. This is an idea that the Apostle Paul has also been working with throughout his letter to the Ephesians. And he, he claims, his great boast is that when we come to the person of Jesus Christ, we are brought into him. We are connected to his body and we are filled with his resurrection life. And so now we are a people who are growing and maturing to become like the one we worship and love, to become like Jesus Christ himself. But in order for that to happen, Paul warns us in the second half of Ephesians chapter 4, which is our passage today, 
He warns us that our habits, our behaviors, our choices should in fact match the thing which we love. They must be consistent with the person we are becoming. And so he invites us to consider who we are and, and what our bodies and what our lives are on their way to become. Would you turn with me to Ephesians 4 verse 17. Let me pray for us as we open the word of God. Jesus, would you train our hearts and our minds, our souls, our affections on you today? Would you cause us to become like you? Would you give us courage and humility to turn from those places where our affections have ruled us and disordered us and separated us from your life? Lord, I pray that as I teach this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of each one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Paul says here in verse 17, just, just prior to this, he's been telling us that, that we are the one body of Jesus Christ. We're a body that's been gifted by Jesus in order to grow up, in order to mature, in order to, to become like the head of our body. And so now in verse 17 he says this, Because you're meant to become mature in the person of Jesus Christ, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Paul's been telling us that we are people now in Christ, that we're growing into that maturity. But here in these few verses, he now gives us a picture of what the human person looks like when it is cut off from the life of Jesus Christ. What it looks like when we live as the Gentiles do, he says. Paul says that when we live in that way, according to the customs and, and the ways of thinking that, that characterize the world around us, we end up denying the person Christ has called us to be. So in verses 17 through 19, Paul looks at what we were once like, what we were like before we were in Christ. And he imagines the human person, the human body, if you will. He says, we had minds that were darkened. We had hearts that were hardened. We were becoming like those idols of stone we worshipped. And he says in the middle of verse 18 that this way of life caused us to be separated from the life of God. He says we became disconnected from the source of true life. 
the great 20th century uh, Greek Orthodox theologian and writer, Alexander Schmemann, talks about what, what causes this to happen for us. What is it that would separate us from the life of God? And like many in the Greek Orthodox tradition, Schmemann recognizes that, that all of creation, all of the, the created world, is meant to be treated as a sacrament of God's presence. Whether that is our physical bodies, whether that's the food that God has given us to eat, whether that's the relationships that he's given us with one another, they are all his gifts. Shemaimon says that, that they only have meaning, they are only meaningful when we recognize from whom they have come and in whom those things have life. Our world is good only in as much as it's connected to the goodness of God who created it. But too often we live like Gentiles, to use Paul's phrase. Too often we, we take the gifts of the created world, the things that we possess, and we treat them as ends in themselves. We disregard their connection to their creator. We treat them as stuff. Right? Stuff given to us to, to do whatever we'd like with, to manipulate, to desire, to worship on our own terms. We separate ourselves from the God who has created us. And so Shemaimon goes on to say that things treated merely as things in themselves will destroy themselves. He says that the world of nature cut off from the source of life becomes a dying world. We, we have no real life except what God has gifted and given us. And so when we leave God behind, when our affections and desires lead us in a different direction, then we leave life behind as well. And so that's what Paul pictures here in verse 19. He says, the result of being disconnected from the life of God is death to our bodies, death to our spirits, death to our very persons. And the language he uses in verse 19 is, is that of, of stunting or the callousing of feeling itself. He says we become like skin that's lost all sensitivity. Right? We're, we're like a leprous hand. This word that he uses could use to, be used to describe leprous skin that, that has no physical sensation left in it. The pursuit of life apart from God proves deadening. And so as a, a last-ditch effort, in order to, to feel something, to feel alive in some way... Paul says we exchange sensitivity for sensuality and for greed and for lustful excess, right? Hoping somehow to regain feeling, to regain life again. But instead, we, we sow into ourselves, right? A, a person that becomes defiled and impure and hungry for something we cannot attain on our own. These verses describe a greedy, starving soul. A body that has flesh and bone but has no life. 
Have you ever known that kind of deep hunger, that kind of deep longing? Now, Paul says here, this is the way that that Gentiles live. We must no longer live in that way. But I don't think he means that that it's impossible for those of us within the family of Jesus to to find ourselves living and and heading in these same directions. We too can take the the gift, the life God has given us, and and miss it and, and set it aside. And instead fall prey to all kinds of disordering desires. We let in pride. We let in anger. We become preoccupied with things like pornography or things like material possession and wealth. We can let into our hearts desires like contentiousness and impatience, right? And the need to control and to manipulate others in order to, to get what we need out of the system. And every time we find ourselves grasping at those things, hoping to feel a little more alive, instead we taste death itself. Paul says, do not go on living in this way. Because, Paul says, you now participate in the life, in the person, in the body of Jesus Christ. There is a different way to be a human being, Paul says. Look at verses 20 and following. Paul says, that, however, that way of living, that that way of, of sowing death into yourself, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says there is a different way. And in verses 20 and 21 and 22, Paul speaks about this different way as a a kind of curriculum, a kind of education, a kind of teaching we have received within the, the church family. He says, when you came into this new church, this new way of of being, you learned a new way of life. You were taught a new kind of truth. But the Greek in verse 20 here is unusual. Paul does not say when when you came into this family you learned about Christ. He doesn't say you learned from him. Paul says quite literally that you learned Christ himself. When you came into the church you were confronted with, you were invited to be in the person of Jesus. To learn him. To participate in in his humanity, his personhood. And so our discipleship is not about me standing up and and giving you moral guidance here or about giving you ideas just to think about. Discipleship is about putting on the personhood of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, Paul says, then we must first put off 
these old selves. We must put off the the disordering affections and the desires that, that cause us to be dead to life. So much of the time when I struggle with with sin in my own life, that that struggle produces shame and and guilt and a sense of defeat, right? It's it's difficult. These things are, are so overwhelming at times. We find ourselves habitually falling into this old way of living. And that can lead me to despair. It can lead me to believe that that this may be just truly who I am, this old self, that I'm, I'm just sort of stuck in this struggle. But here, with the strongest of language, Paul exhorts us. He says, the gospel commands you, put off the old self. Be, be stripped of it, be rid of it, and instead, put on the person of Jesus. Learn Jesus Christ. Let him renew the attitude of your mind. Let him put on his personhood in in the center of who you are. Let him transform and reclothe you with his body, his way of being. And so in in the remainder of this chapter, Paul explores for us, what does that look like? How does that transformation begin to take place in the members of our body? Verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul says here, this is what the new person, the new body, who is in Christ, looks like. I think too often we we can read into the scriptures this kind of misperception that that they are somehow anti-body. That that real Christian spirituality is somehow becoming disconnected from our humanity. But in fact... Nothing could be further from the truth. While while our our humanity is is spoiled and and is tainted by sin and death, Jesus has come not to make us disembodied, but to make us re-bodied. To remake us, to remake every member, every part and piece of who we are into his image, into his new and full, perfect humanity. Humanity. 
Right? Paul will say that, that Jesus is the forerunner. He's the first fruits of, of the resurrection body, of the resurrection life. That's what we're being called into, what we're being called to become. So Paul here takes a look at our bodies, at our persons, and he says, this is what, what the body of Jesus does and does not look like, what it does and does not do. And he's mentioned already back in verse 23 that, that this process of transformation begins with, with a renewal of our mind, with a renewal of our thinking, with a renewal of our attitude, Paul says. That we, we become like Christ. He begins to give us hope and, and understanding and, and he illuminates us. We learn the person of Jesus in our minds. But then it's just a short distance from the mind to the mouth. And Paul asks us, well then what does it look like for our mouths to be redeemed? One of the, the, the prayer books I use in the morning, the, the first prayer as I sit down and the first thought I think in the day, it says, Lord, open my mouth that my lips might declare your praise, that, that my mouth might be used as an instrument as it was intended to be. Paul says, for our lips to be part of the body of Christ, to be redeemed and made full, it first means, verse 25 and then again in 29, it means putting off falsehood. It means no longer speaking in a way that is less than true. And he says it also means putting aside unwholesome talk. The adjective there, translated unwholesome, can be uh, a reference to, to a kind of language, but often it also referred to food that was physically spoiling and rotten. Paul says our, our mouths in the person of Jesus Christ are not designed to spew forth that which is, is rotten and is, is decaying and is dying and is deceitful. Right? That's not what we were created for. No matter how people rant on Twitter or how they argue on cable news or, or how they engage in political discourse or in relational discourse... Paul says that is not to characterize you and your relationships and your attitudes and your words. He says you belong to a different body. You belong to the one body of Jesus Christ. Therefore, live into that. Speak into that. Paul says speak truthfully. Speak only those words which will build one another up, construct and, and edify the spirit of this one family. This is what your mouth was created to do. It's a new way to be a human being, a human being in Christ. Then in verse 28, Paul moves on to our hands. Remember he says that when we lived as the Gentiles did, we had lost all sensitivity. We had no feeling Paul says, now our hands are not meant to, to simply grasp at and to take what is not ours. To steal. To be given over to greed. Instead, he says, we have been given hands that we can work, we can cultivate, we can create good things. And out of the abundance of, of that creative power God has given us, we can then share those with those who have need. 
right? Have new hands, have new minds, have new mouths in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Paul reimagines for us what this new body in Jesus Christ looks like, he then also takes us into its interior places. He says, if Christ dwells within us, then we cannot let anger reside there. We cannot give it a foothold. We cannot let the sun go down on our anger and let it fester and dominate and direct our affections. Because we possess the love of Christ. And then in verse 31, he says, nor can we let bitterness or shouting or hatred or malice I think they use the word brawling in this translation. None of those things are to characterize and, and to live within the people God is remaking in Jesus. Because all of those things destroy relationship. They destroy other people, other persons God has made. And you and I might look at verse 31 and think, okay, that list sounds like someone described in a police report. Right, someone who is just sort of wildly out of control. But I think if you look at each one of those words, right, Paul could be describing the way that, that anger and bitterness and malice live in my heart each day, that, that they creep into the thoughts and the words that I use with people that I love, people that are close to me. They infect my relationships with my spouse and my children and my colleagues and within the church family as well. Paul reminds us again, this is not who you are. This is not what Christ has created human relationships to be like. Paul says in verse 32, instead, know the kindness, know the compassion that God himself embodies toward you. Right? The God who is slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love, in graciousness to his children. Right? Let, let that inhabit your innermost being. Put that on. Let that dwell within you richly so that you might be quick to forgive, so that you might quickly be reconciled to one another you might forgive one another as Christ has forgiven and known you. So that this body of Christ, you would not only be whole in your individual person, but, but corporately, relationally, we might be one. We might remain unified as well. Paul says this is what it means to be a person in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? How do, we, how do we move in that direction? I think what Paul is describing is, is an orientation. It's a process. It's, it's a setting of our minds and our hearts and our spirits again and again on this new person Jesus is inviting us to become, to learn him, to learn from him, to walk with him, to abide in him, to let him remake us into what we love love the person of Jesus Christ.